Okay, yep, I'm ready. Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. And in today's episode, we're facing the mother of all pedestals, Brian, the finale. And my foot is feeling extra kicky. I'm going to give you a little spoiler. <laughs> this is the fewest number of the movies that the I'm going to keep. The kickinest year. I think it's the kickiest year of all the <laughs> years that we've done so far. 99, yep. 2000, 2001. I'm mm. going to kick the most movies this year that I have Wow. Uh, so far. So Some Bold, bold statement. <laughs> I guess so. In 2002, the nominees for Best Picture were Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, The Hours, The Pianist, Gangs of New York, and the year's winner, Chicago. Coming up in the finale show, we reorder those top five, which Mike just mentioned. Then we'll ask each other one question designed to scrape the ABC gum of truth off your cinema recliner. We will talk trivia. (laughs) We will do the grand reveal where we will give our personal top fives from the year using any movie that came out that year from, you know, from which to choose. And then we will give a few other Oscar kicks of say, say, you know, actor, actress, and then we'll give our golden takes to finish it up. So Mike, how would you reorder the year's top five? Usually I say that this is the easiest part of the finale, (laughs) reordering the Academy's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. picks, not this year. From the bottom up, I'm going the hours. Number four, Chicago. Number three, Gangs of New York. Number two, Lord of the Rings. And number one, The Pianist. So in this slate, uh-huh. My number one and my number five were a lock. I knew the pianist was going to be <laughs> one. I knew the hour was going to be my last one. Uh-huh. Um, but all the ones in the middle, I I, I could have flip-flopped. Mm-hmm. For me, I did not do Gangs of New York. Um, I, As many listeners know, I watch all my movies edited, and I, there wasn't one for this one, so I sat it out. But for my four, Chicago is at the bottom, then Lord of the Rings, Two Towers. Number two the hours for sure because i love that movie and the pianist number one as well so we both agree that the pianist was the best movie of 2002 from the oscar picks and i think it was pretty clear yeah it was to me too no no doubt all right so let's get into questions for you brian and i've kind of already teased here that Mm -hmm. i'm going to be kicking the most that i have so far so i guess that the the obvious question is is 2002 the worst slate of best picture nominees that we've seen so far well, I also, um, I don't know. I'm trying to remember how many I kicked from before, but I think it's, uh, I think it, it's, it's weaker than 2000 or 2001. It seems like I've kept two each year, mm. except for this year. This year you only kept one. I'm only going to be keeping one. <laughs> um, weirdly though, uh-huh. I think that it might be the strongest I, year you know of what? Academy's the picks. Top, the top five. Oh, wait, say that again. I think that the Academy's picks for the five are the best of their picks. Oh. But I don't think that enough of them rise to the level yeah. of meeting to my personal top like, five. Like they're not horrible movies like some other previous ones have been. <laughs> I, I think that they all have clear greatness yeah. in them, which makes them deserving of at least considering for the year's top five, which is more than I can say for 
I agree. In 99, 2000 and no one. I, I'm not going to keep, for example, Chicago. I kicked that, you know, in the first, in the first episode that we did on it. Yeah. But there was a lot to say for it. And I, I did like some parts of it and I could see where it had some, has some greatness to it as well. Other than the pianist, I kind of felt like that was the one with the least, it was the least flawed of mm-hmm. those four I felt. But personally, I'm not the biggest musical fan. Yeah. I felt like it's the most slight of the bunch also on top of being the most flawed, or the least flawed. So it's got to go. I can find something <laughs> else to replace it that I'm more excited about. Indeed. My question to you, Mike, is this year, <clears throat> 2002, Jack Nicholson was nominated for his role in About Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Um, it was his 12th Oscar nomination, making him the most decorated of any actor in history, as far as males. Of nominations, of not nom- of wins. Of nominations. Meryl Streep also was nominated for her 13th, um, which wow. made her the most uh, win- er, most nominated actress, and she's gone on to mm-hmm. have more, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question to you is, is Jack Nicholson the greatest actor who ever lived? <laughs> no. Oscar says Yes. No, uh, Oscar says a lot of things that I don't <laughs> that I don't agree with. Okay, well then, but I I don't know Who is? Th- why why not? I mean, the, the to think of the tenure that he had, you know, yes, the breadth, yeah, year after well, decade after decade, he he definitely has been consistent. Mm-hmm. We'll say that he he continually makes good choices with with what movies he makes. <laughs> I think that helps. It you does. know, I was thinking Big about time. this a lot last weekend, like trying mm-hmm. to think of actors like Matthew McConaughey. Let's let's talk about him for a second. This guy very popular right now in a lot of good he's movies. A, he is a great actor. He's very McConaughey. He, he's very good. True Detective. He's great. He's been in a lot of great stuff. <laughs> but there was a period there where it was like he couldn't figure out mm-hmm. what kind of movie star he wanted to be in a, in a lot of bad rom-coms or whatever and maybe just picking the wrong projects and maybe the agent is the one that should be getting these awards, Brian. I also think <laughs> there should be an Oscar for agent. Yeah. You, agent of the year. Yeah. You read the most scripts and you picked the good ones. You picked the right ones. I also think that there are a lot of actors who do have to kind of find their way there. A lot of people start out as like supporting role, you know, mm-hmm. even less than supporting role and then work themselves up to supporting and then become the leading man. And then what happens to him? Like, Jude Law, I think, is a good example. I recently watched uh, Cold Mountain for preparing for 2003. Ugh. I thought <laughs> I thought you would hate Cold Mountain. I'm watching. I'm like, Mike does not like this movie. No, I do I, not. I didn't love it either. It's definitely not in my top five. I mean, there are some things about it that I liked, but um, it, won a ton, it won a bunch of Oscars. It was not nominated for Best Picture. But Jude Law was the leading, the leading man in that movie. Yeah. I don't think that it's a really strong role for him, but he's like really great in other supporting roles and he's kind of gone on. I think if you, if you just like chopped off his career at cold mountain, you might say, wow, he made it. He made it to the status of leading man road to perdition. Great side role. Yep. Step up to leading man in one of the biggest Oscar movies, you know, of the year 2003 He's the next and talented Mr. Ripley. He was already doing that that thing, you know, where he was like, yeah. "Oh, this is charisma guy. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the guy who can sell you on any character, no matter how crappy that character yeah. seems. You kind of like him because it's Jude Law." So, going back to the Jack Nicholson thing, I think the reason that I would say I don't think he's the greatest actor is that he feels kind of narrow in what he does, which he does incredibly well. But it's similar. I guess a lot of times it feels like a similar character. Although about Schmidt is a totally off the wall yeah. role for him. 
Um, side note of trivia. So Jack Nicholson became, when he, when he was nominated in 2002 for About Schmidt, he became one of only, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people <laughs> who have ever been nominated in five different decades. Wow. Yeah, longevity. Michael Caine, Meryl Streep, of course. Paul Newman, who was 50s, 60s, skipped the 70s, go to 80s, 90s, 2000s. So that's pretty impressive. Wow. Catherine Hepburn did the same thing. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, skipped the 70s, go to the 80s. And So 70s, we were very like anti-establishment we guys. We were, we're, light we're done on, with them. Light on Newman and, and Hepburn. Mm-hmm. Um, Laurence Olivier did it from 30s to the 70s. And somebody entered this, cl- this category that I was surprised to see on this list in the 2020s. Francis McDormand. Oh, wow. Yeah. From the 80s to the 2020s, she has been nominated for acting. It's crazy that it's yeah. been that long. It you don't does really not feel like you it. You don't really think of her as like being in this category, this pantheon. Yeah. But think of what she has done in her career and how good she's been in almost everything that, that she's ever been in. Yeah. She's been really good for a really long time. She has. Trivia time. Let's do it. I have six things. Tom Hanks was originally set for the double role of Charlie and Donald Kaufman in Adaptation. Mm. Tom Hanks and everything, right? Could he do that role? Have you seen Adaptation? Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't ask you this ahead of time. Yeah. I know we talked about it at one point. That was hard to get. This is a movie that's hard to track down. I had to wait for Netflix DVD to send it to me. Weirdly, also. Yeah, I, I, know. I, don't, I don't know why it's kind of yeah. rare. Um, Charlie Kaufman uh, wrote the screenplay. I think it's kind of good to have Nicolas Cage because yeah. he's kind of a weird guy guy he's a he's weird, weird actor enough. you never really know what to expect from his performance is yeah. he going to go crazy big mm-hmm. or is he going to be a little more understated and i think that's sort of what you want in, in a role like that nicholas cage got five million for his role and he also wore a fat suit during filming <laughs> they would have had to pay tom hanks more <laughs> number two on my trivia again charlie kaufman he studied at nmu he studied at nmu i mean <laughs> That's where I went to college. That's where I went to grad school. All the NYU. <laughs> Similar. NYU. Um, he was classmates with Chris Columbus. Okay. Director. Home Alone. Nice. And he was also um, classmates of a guy named Paul Proch or Proch. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. P-R-O-C-H. And they had a lasting friendship and they wrote many unproduced scripts and plays. I would like to read what those are. Hmm. Him and Proch. Yes. Number three, I already said this, Meryl Streep got her 13th nomination. Number four, Mer- Julianne Moore was the ninth performer in history this year in 2002 to earn two acting nominations in the same year. That's pretty incredible for one person in two movies to be nominated like that. Number five, Road to Perdition. Cinematographer mm-hmm. was Conrad Hall. He won the Oscar that year for cinematography after I criticized the cinematography to you, saying it was too comic booky, yeah. which is totally Outrageous. hypocritical of me because it un- makes the Unbreakable, movie. I praised for the cinematography <laughs> being comic book-like. And I don't think that either of them are comic book-like. <laughs> so it's, I, I it's will, an interesting critique. I will say this to you that I am inconsistent in my takes, but I stand by them nevertheless. He was nominated, or he won it posthumously. But this guy is a legend. He'd mm-hmm. been nominated for 10 Oscars between 65 and 02, and he won three times, including for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He also won for American Beauty in addition to Road to Perdition. His son, this is my last trivia point, his son is Conrad W. Hall, 
And he also is a cinematographer. He was his father's assistant on a lot of movies growing up. And he was the cinematographer on Panic Room in 2002. Ah, all right. Nice. Century, yeah. Generational right. talents. Personal top fives. This is it. This is the grand reveal we've been waiting for. What? I'll, I'll go first because I want to know. I want to save the, the, the suspense for yours. Yeah. So in 2002, I watched 21 movies. I'm racking them up. You know, I'm doing my homework. I would say that in this year, there were fewer movies that were true challengers for my top five than in 2001. Okay. Um, it seemed like the top five kind of rose to the top and there was pretty big distance between these five and others. And I liked all five of these quite So a it bit. was easy for you to pick these five? Not to order them, but yeah. Okay. For the most part, I think it was pretty easy. I did not see Hero, Jet Li. Is that O2? I think it is. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. I think it was nominated for foreign film. Hmm. But I'll maybe we double check that. You can double check that. Yeah. You, you don't have to listen to what I'm saying right now. You can double check it. I did not see Gangs of New York. I didn't see Talk to Her, which is nominated. Um, but here are my top five. If I had a drum roll button, then I would push it right now. Um, also, two movies that did not make my top five, but I liked a lot Far From Heaven, Julianne Moore, great performance, Dennis Quaid, great performance. Uh, and Panic Room, which I really did like a lot. You've seen Panic Room, right? Yeah, it's a great thriller. I really liked super it. Super tight, super fun. Yeah, I, I I was surprised how much I liked it. So 2002, my Hero number... Hero looks like 2000... Oh, man, maybe it is 2002. I don't know. There's a lot of different dates here, so it's probably maybe released initially in 2002 yeah, and it came I to the States in 2004. Yeah, I think that's what it is. If you look at the... Uh, <clears throat> the um, if you look at the Wikipedia page for the... Uh, for the... the the Oscars that year. Oh yeah, I'm looking at it right here. So just to be clear, best foreign film, Nowhere in Africa won, it's Germany, and Hero was nominated for best foreign film in for 2000, the 75th Academy Awards. Hmm. Well, it released in China in 2002. It looks like 2003, January in the USA. Okay. But that was at a film festival. It didn't even go wide until like 2004. Wow. It's too confusing following these these timelines. It really is, yeah. But you got to compare them in the same year they were compared there, so Mm -hmm, it's hard. mm -hmm. Okay, so my number five movie of 2002 was The Hours. Okay. Big fan of this movie. I know you hated it, but I I thought it would be higher for you, actually. I know. I thought about it. I'm glad it wasn't, but (laughs) I I thought it would be. I really did. This is what I'm saying. Like, these are grouped close together in my mind because I don't think that the hours, and if if you're not familiar with the hours, you can check out our previous podcast episode about it. Um, We got into some great fisticuffs, verbal (laughs) fisticuffs about this one. Um, Julianne Moore, again, she was nominated. Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep. Um, Virginia Woolf. And I love that there are three inter- intertwining stories. I thought that made it strange and, and exciting. My number four movie, which could easily in some days be number one, was The Pianist. Mm, okay. Ag- again, if you have not, if you're not that familiar with The Pianist, go check out our previous podcast episode about it. Roman Polanski's, t- it's a really a masterpiece. Um, I can I can hardly say any flaw that I found in the movie, and I it was very moving and 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 great uh, World War II, um, Nazi movie, <laughs> Holocaust, yeah, <laughs> Holocaust movie. Um, but if I look at what is my personal top five, what am I the most excited to go back and rewatch even? Um, so rewatchability is playing a part in your I list would, here, huh? I would say that all five of these movies have high rewatchability for okay. me. But 
But my number three is Minority Report. Now, Minority Report is, um, I also might, you might also say that recency has some, maybe mm. some impact on this. If I would have seen Minority Report and then The Pianist like two nights ago, who knows if they would be swapped. That's how close all these things are for me. Yeah. Now, is Minority Report as big of a ambitious movie? Maybe not as, as ambitious as The Pianist or whatever, but what do I like the most? I really love Minority Report. I always have since I first saw it. So this is what I love about Minority Report. The, just the, the little um, the summary that you see, the plot summary on IMDb, just tells you how cool this is. In a future, in a future, where a special police unit is able to arrest murderers before they commit their crimes, an officer from that unit is himself accused of a future murder. I mean, come on, this is like about as cool of a premise as you're ever going to get. And, and there's not a lot of like really great sci-fi movies that are in this period, in my opinion, but this is a great one. And uh, the story by Philip K. Dick, who also wrote the story that inspired Blade Runner, Total Recall, and the, the show that's been on um, streaming, The Man in the High Castle. Tom Cruise is so great in this movie. Um, it's also the most compelling mystery that I saw this year. And um, Spielberg, I think this really fulfills the thing he was going for in AI. There's a lot of similar mm. aesthetic, but the story actually holds together a lot better. I know there's a lot of like weirdness with like Kubrick starting it and Spielberg yeah. finishing it. I mean, it. this is more of an action movie. It is, it is. Um, but there's a lot of action-y kind of moments in AI and yeah. also Jude Law in a weird Pinocchio role. Yeah. Samantha Morton could have been nominated for Supporting Actress um, as one of the precogs, and I thought she was really great. So that's my number three. So is Minority Report in your top five, Mike? Um, it's not. Is it a time travel movie? It should is the question. be. It should be in your top five. It's, it's very fun. I like it yeah. a lot. It's definitely... But you see it almost more like a panic room type of... More yeah, fun movie. Yeah, maybe I, w- I would put them similarly. I, yeah. I enjoy them both a lot. Yeah, but um, no, they're not top fivers for me. All right. Well, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> Number two Rude. is adaptation. Chris Cooper won Best Supporting Actor, and that was the only that it won. But Charlie Kaufman was also nominated for Adapted Screenplay. This is about Charlie Kaufman after he had just written John Mal- being John Malkovich, now is trying to adapt another screenplay and it's about him and his fictional brother both trying to write screenplays it's so weird so meta um it's if you haven't seen it it's almost hard to describe the feeling of the movie because you know that you're being twisted around in reality and yet you're I, i was there the whole time and i was just eating it up um Three of Charlie Kaufman, this is kind of like cements Charlie Kaufman as like a great screenwriter. I mean, being John Malkovich was like enough pretty much, but this one coming right after that, I think is just incredible. And then of course he goes on to write Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking this whole time. Like this, this is practice movie. It is, for his in a way. Best, best movie in my But in my adaptation, uh, it's, I just, I, I was so surprised by it. I had never watched it until, you know, a month or so ago. And um, it, anyway, all three of these movies that we're talking about, adaptation being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine, all written by Charlie Kaufman, are in the 
Writer Guild of America's list of top 101 greatest screenplays ever written. It's pretty incredible for, for that to happen. So that brings us to my number one movie of 2002. The big one. Which is Punch Drunk Love. Oh, yes. Paul Thomas Anderson uses all the senses. He's got strange and amazing music, the visuals, everything about this movie, Adam Sandler's role, the choice to go with Adam Sandler. It's so fresh and strange. We Again, if you're not familiar with Punch Drunk Love, you should go listen to our other podcast <laughs> episode about this one because it was a fun conversation. But while I, what I what I loved about this is that even though all of the the craft elements are there, you still don't lose the emotional tug of the characters. Yeah. And I thought that was also true of adaptation. Yeah, and it feels so, abstract while also feeling very grounded. Absolutely. So <laughs> yeah, Punch Drunk Love um, rose to the top for me. So I love it. The Hours, The Pianist, Minority Report, Adaptation. We're gonna have, we have very different lists <laughs> this year, which which makes me happy. I think I, I don't want to agree with you. <laughs> no, because then it seems like we're in cahoots. Who would ever want to agree with me on anything? We're battling, Brian. We, we are, are. We're we're adversaries. It's a struggle of wills. <laughs> All right. So tell me your top five. So I said before, you know that ordering the Academy's picks, the two to four, yeah. were kind of a toss up, and that's because I kind of there were things I wanted to save with each of them, like. Chicago, I liked a lot. I thought it was well made. Not really made for me. So like, I, <laughs> kick it. Gangs in New York, I got to save Daniel Day-Lewis's performance. Build a Butcher, iconic character. And it's kind of the same with The Two Towers. Smeagol. But I'm kicking all three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm kicking the hours. And The Pianist is the last man standing. Mm-hmm. Just where does it go in the order? I don't know. That's the question. It doesn't go number five because my number five, you brought up before, is about Schmidt. Mm. So I think... It's apropos that you bring up Jack Nicholson, because mm-hmm. I feel like so much of the reason that this movie works is because of, you said before, like Jack Nicholson plays Who a very has specific been in the past. Yeah. part. Yeah, and his his persona is very well-defined. Mm-hmm. And that persona is very big and virile and, and loud sometimes. Not so soft and putting around the house. Yeah, like he, <laughs> he uses sort of his legacy against us to make this very, very reserved guy who smiles with his lips pursed tight, <laughs> uses the word fine all the time. Like everything is fine. Nothing's ever good or great. <laughs> everything is fine. Um, that little shuffle walk. But if I have one complaint about it, it's that I wish that some of the characters were a little less cartoony. Yeah. I think that Alexander Payne does this kind of often, especially in his earlier. Did he also write about Schmidt? Uh, I think so. I think the, he, it might have been an adaptation. I don't remember. Eventually, but he also did Election um, in 99. And he's about to do Sideways, he's which we'll to get sideways. to in a couple of years. And it's kind of a similar complaint that I had with Election, looking back at it. These were two movies that I loved back in the day. And then this time, I, I really, really liked them. But if that w- I had that one reservation mm-hmm. that maybe that was they were a little bit um, goofy sometimes. But... I almost don't even mind that so much because he also leans on these like really quiet, dramatic human moments. Like after Nicholson's wife dies and we see him putting her face cream on in the mirror. Mm -hmm. This is an image, Brian, that has stuck with me for like 15 years. That is a great moment. The grief, you know, of doing like something that's so private. Yes. You know, he just doesn't know what to do. So he's smearing it on his face. Yeah. And you've seen the scene before in movies where, you know, somebody's sad that they lost someone and they go in the closet and they smell the clothes. Mm -hmm. But like, this is the same idea, but it's taken to like that extra, almost weird place, which makes it more real in a Mm -hmm. way. 
no one's in his house. They don't see him. They don't see what he's doing. That's the time that you do embarrassing things. So I just love that it's kind of this part serious exploration of like identity and saying goodbye and purpose. And also this comedy where like the highest form of self-expression is peeing on the bathroom floor after he's uh, alone in the house. My number four, this is going to be Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man? <laughs> I have to sit back from the microphone to shout. Yeah, that's 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 the fourth best movie of 2002. And again, one that we talked about in a bonus these, episode. These are different I've, top fives, aren't they? They're so different. I, this is like <laughs> the populist movie that mm-hmm. earned the spot for me. So hold on a second. Mm-hmm. You're saying Better than Minority, Minority Report. Report is too just fun. Yep. Not, you know... Serious enough or it's, we're important not, enough? We're not talking about something. seriousness. We're talking about what's your favorite. We're talking about favorite mm-hmm. and we're talking about I don't, accomplishment in a way. And I think mm-hmm. that this just accomplishes more. You know, before this, we had X-Men, which we've talked about before. It's black leather and it's steel and it's like very serious. And Brian Singer, the director, is trying to make superheroes like adults so that we can take them seriously. And I think he did in a certain way. But X-Men is not perfect. This movie is not perfect, but it's a whole lot better than X-Men. And I think that Raimi kind of takes it the extra step. Like if now we're taking superheroes seriously, Spider-Man like puts them over the top and now we can have fun with them. And I don't see how the MCU happens without yeah, Spider-Man as a precursor. I could see this as being kind of a um, sort of the forerunner of the MCU. I guess that's kind of where what you've... Did you tweet about that? Is that where I'm remembering that? Maybe. This kind of like began the MCU, uh, paved the way for the MCU, something like that, maybe? Yeah. I mean, the the aesthetic is different. It's mm-hmm. definitely campier. It's more comic booky. Um but there's a lot of similarities there too. You know, the brightness, you know, if DC is like the dark yeah. Snyder gritty thing, Marvel's the opposite. And it, I, I think it starts here. It's kind of interesting that DC is associated that way. I mean, between the Dark Knight trilogy, you know, I don't know if they embraced that darkness partly because of that, that worked so well, that became the billion dollar, you know, promise. Well, I mean, Tim Burton did it. Yeah. 89. And, yeah. With the Jack Nicholson Joker. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So number three, Best Picture nominee, The Pianist. Mm-hmm. That's my three. It contended for my number two, but I've said this before many times, I can't shake the feeling that a lot of the emotional power that we bring into Holocaust movies comes from stuff off screen. So is that a bad thing, though? Yeah, it's it's like cheating in a way. <laughs> like, it's it's just a you, button. The, you picked too strong of a subject to make this movie about. It's not, I will demote it's you. It's not that it's too strong of a subject. <laughs> it's that there is a built-in automatic emotional response, regardless of how good the movie is. Yeah. Like, you're always going to feel bad when you're seeing... And then it's easy, it's easy to kind of confuse feeling bad for being affected by uh, director's choices will, in the craft. I will give you credit for putting the pianist above Spider-Man. I'll give you credit <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it's that um, my top three, I couldn't really find many flaws. Yeah. About Schmidt and Spider-Man, I felt like they did have some flaws, but the good really outweighed the bad. Yeah. Um, and they deserve to be in there. Number two, this is the uh, the first foreign film I've picked, mm. I believe. It's Alfonso Cuaron's Itumama Tambien. Mm. This movie shook me up when mm. I saw it for the first time, I, I guess 14, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. The long takes, the way he tells multiple stories in one frame constantly throughout the movie, and then also <clears throat> mirrors that same effect in this narration. You have this third person omniscient narrator who just 
cuts into scenes with always a second or two of silence before he starts talking, which is always jarring because you feel like, is my DVD skipping? Like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. But I think that that's part of it because it jars you out of the main character, quote, main character storylines to tell us all of these other stories of characters that we might not ever meet again or the backgrounds of characters that aren't really that important to the story. My favorite one is we have characters driving down a road. It's a road movie. They're going down to the beach. And the narrator cuts in at one point to explain uh, in images a car crash that happened on this road months before. We hear about an overturned truck, bloody chicken cages, and a widow crying. That's it. You know, that's the last time that that we're told about that story. We never meet the characters who are in that story or the widow. It doesn't matter to the to the main storyline that we're following but it just serves this whole idea that like we're recontextualizing the idea of what a protagonist is we're we're reframing perspective to always remind you that even though we're focusing on this story it's just one story in a in a giant ensemble of stories and it's almost like if you look at it that way this three person cast three person story turns into this like ensemble cast where these three characters make up half and like the whole rest of the world makes up the other half, which seems ambitious and kind of impossible. But that's the feeling I got hmm. watching this movie. Did you were you able to catch up with this? I one? have not seen this one now, so Oh man. It's uh number, number it, two in the top five it's, of two thousand two. It's definitively the number two best movie of two thousand two. Mm-hmm. Um no questions. But it's very explicit and so for your yeah. i believe filters, there's no filters for it so that's probably why i haven't gotten to it it would change things yeah a, a lot to to uh to put a filter on it so yeah that's my number two mm-hmm. and my number one emotions are illegal guns can save the world equilibrium wait 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 wait, wait, wait. equilibrium is number one number one movie of the year <laughs> mike Okay, so what's the real number one? All right, that's I, I was hoping your reaction would be a little more violent, um, but no, Equilibrium's not my number one. It's Punch okay. Drunk Love. Okay, good. It's, yeah. I just know that you hate Equilibrium so much. I made you watch it. I think it's super fun. You hated it. Yeah, I, I was not a fan. <laughs> Emotions are illegal, though, Brian. I knew when I made Punch Drunk Love number one, I knew that you were going to also make it because we agreed so much on it during the during this episode. Yeah, and I feel like this is an advocacy moment. We're, more more we're, people need to see. We are united in this. We need to have a crusade that punch drunk love needs to be removed from the, who knows, the bottom barrel of the, something. You know, like people might think of it as art house, no. uh, hoity toity. Come on, this is it an is, immediate but it's, lock. it's got it all. It's artsy and it's got Adam Sandler in a serious role, but he's still hilarious. Like what? I could not find one flaw with this movie. After I rewatched it for this show, there was absolutely no question in my mind that it was going to be the number one mm-hmm. on my list. It's so magical and so weird, like you said, and it's the sort of risky turn that I love to see from not just directors, but but any artist where, you know, being different for your next thing doesn't just mean being bigger. You know, like, okay, now it's going to be a three and a half hour movie. Now it's going to be an ensemble cast. Now it's going to be a period piece with costumes. Like, no, no, no. It's just going to be surprising and super creative and and just no different. Co- no costumes. One costume. Blue <laughs> yeah. suit. Blue suit, red dress. <laughs> oh, man. I, it's, it's just so great. I, I mean, there's not really that much I could say for it, except for I think it's by far the most exciting movie of 2002. Do you think... 
So according to Rotten Tomatoes, There Will Be Blood was Paul Thomas Anderson's masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I'm looking gonna, forward to rewatching We're going to get there. I'm we're going to get there in 2007, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. But because of my admiration for There Will Be Blood, I'm going to be anxiously comparing the two. Now, is there a PTA in between? No. I thought there was like a gap, right? He had this gap in between. Yeah, it was it was Magnolia to this, to There Will Be Blood. Yeah, very interesting career. Yeah, so do you have any honorable Paul mentions? Thomas Anderson. My, my two biggest ones I mentioned already were Far From Heaven and Panic Room. Um, I will... There were moments of Road to Perdition that I really liked, and I could I could look at my list. To yeah, it tries it. pretty hard to be sort of poetic and, Which and heavy Road to Perdition. Yeah, um, and I don't think that all that narration really works. So, so that really wasn't ever a the contender. narration kind of ruined the movie. To be honest with you, I, I feel like it would have been so much stronger without it. It kind of tries yeah. to hit you over the head. You know, the little boy looking out to the sea and saying very thoughtful yeah. things. Like I, I uh, others that <clears throat> that stood out to me at least with certain moments. I did like certain things in Frailty. Oh, really? The Matthew McConaughey movie. Yeah. Um, that one was among the contenders for a little while until like some of these others started stacking up. And there's a lot that I liked about Solaris, the Steven Soderbergh movie. I, I'm I'm even more curious now to see the original on which this that mm-hmm. movie was based. Um, I had never even heard of the original before, and I hadn't I had never watched Solaris. It was always kind of on my list because I do like a lot of you know sci-fi. Um, I like sort of less geeky, smart sci-fi, which there is, there is a lot of it out there, but, um, yeah. Hmm. So like non-equilibrium type of (laughs) sci-fi. Equilibrium is amazing. (laughs) Uh, actually my talking about populist movies, you know, I had Spider-Man and you're talking about Minority Report. The one that I really wanted to fit on my list and I just had to kick last minute and I was really surprised was Catch Me If You Can. The other Spielberg yeah, movie I like that, that came a lot out too. I agree. There's there's heart to that movie that yeah. is sort of surprising. And it's not deep, you know. It, no. it has a father son's thing going on, but it yeah. doesn't push that, and it doesn't try to say anything really novel at all. But I just think that it's like just masterfully made pop art, and it almost it feels like a masterpiece because of that. It isn't one, yeah, but it feels like one, and it's just so fun to watch. It's worth seeing. It, it is fun to watch. Tom Hanks is really good in it. And um, you mostly buy his accent, which is which is great. <laughs> the accents, yeah. Um, <laughs> unlike Cold Mountain, where the accents were not good throughout. Yeah, accents um, and um, <laughs> gaining weight for roles. Those are like your, your two defining characteristics of anything. Yes, exactly. The thing with uh, Catch Me If You Can is there were there's some moments where Spielberg really pulls off the like, you feel really the this loneliness for Leo Leonardo DiCaprio's character mm-hmm. that he's, he's so fun and charismatic and sometimes, and then other times you realize he's Mr. Popular in some ways, but he's really pretty lonely for, for the bulk of it. Yeah. So let's get on to other Oscar kicks here. So are there any other awards that you feel like you want to give out or you want to change I, from 2002? I do. I think adaptation should have won for best adapted screenplay over the pianist. Pianist was almost basically a flawless movie, but as far as like the screenplays, the inventiveness of adaptation is, I mean, it's, it's more, it's the most inventive movie maybe that I've ever seen as far as like the weirdness <clears throat> of the ideas, maybe rivaled only by being John Malkovich and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Yeah. And if it's so, going to win anything, that it would, would be, be the it. screenplay. Um, Meryl Streep 
was nominated for supporting an adaptation. Well-deserved. But I think she also should have been nominated for the hours. Really? Over <laughs> Kathy Bates and About Schmidt, who, who was fine, but I don't think really needed to win, you know, be nominated for an Oscar for that. Now, really quick with, with Meryl Streep, because I don't want to go down with a thing. Do you kind of feel like at a certain point, um, if someone has already gotten a ton of acclaim, that let's save it for great role even though she was very good in this we always expect her to be very good and she's yeah. already gotten other awards so does that factor in or just I, I think sometimes that could but it also can help somebody i mean if you know oh that's the latest meryl street movie yeah the first question you might ask is could she be nominated for that most people don't get that benefit of the initial reaction maybe this is oscar worthy so i think she probably has gotten gotten both for it but i wonder if sometimes being nominated feels like, yeah, we gave her her nomination. Now let's let somebody else win. Yeah. But for her to not be nominated for a really dramatic performance in the hours, but Queen Latifah, I don't think she really deserved to get nominated for the hours for best supporting. I mean, for, for, for Chicago, Chicago, not really. Other ones for me is Punch Drunk Love got nominated for nothing and it should have been nominated for best picture. Robert Ellswit should have been nominated for Best Cinematography. Yes. I think yes. it was superior to Conrad Hall in Road to Perdition, if nothing else. I mean... Um, even though he it, had some interesting choices. If and, I'm going to stump for anything for Road to Perdition, it would be cinematography. I, I, I'm okay with it being there. Yeah. Well... But it... I disagree. I think it should have been It's considered. fine, but if I had... To, but I think I think Best Punch Drunk Love was superior. Uh, Road to Perdition had a very unique style. And now that I know that where, who Conrad Hall is, that does make a difference to me. I know maybe that's, it shouldn't, but knowing like his credentials throughout, it makes me more interested to go back and look at that with different eyes. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very spare. A lot of the, a lot of the scenes are very spare. And um, I, I guess I didn't really jump at them. Paul, well, Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson, best director. Yeah, definitely. I would kick Rob Marshall Chicago over, you know, and make room for him on the list. I would also kick the hours. And um, no, the hours deserves all of and its, its attention. <laughs> Gangs in New York for best director. Yeah, yeah. Didn't see it. Adam Sandler should have gotten nominated for best actor. I think that he was better than Jack Nicholson and, and about Schmidt. I mean, mm. I don't have anything against Jack Nicholson. I think he's one of the best of all time. But if you had to say who had the most dynamic performance in one movie, I think he was superior to Jack mm. Nicholson's performance. I don't think I agree with that. Mm. I don't think so. But if we are given punch drunk love all these uh, awards let's give it best original score also score mm -hmm. screenplay get the hours out of the score <laughs> the score i totally uh, agree with the so score. heavy-handed the hours is way over the top on the score mm -hmm. but yeah paul thomas and i'm almost always going to be more interested in a score that goes a little weird than just does a lot of strings yeah the strings you know We've been there. The We've been there for a hundred years. The thing I will say about the hours is it does do a lot of strings, but it doesn't do strings in the normal way where right where somebody start, starts mm. saying something emotional, it kicks in and then swells to the tears. Like it goes throughout almost the entire movie yeah, where it, it tries to kind of tie together the, the different timelines through that yeah. orchest orchestral music. Which another mostly is masterfully done, but the music doesn't really, <sighs> doesn't really do it for me. But... Paul Thomas Anderson, best original screenplay. Although I did like Far From Heaven, I think it was superior to Todd Haynes's best original screenplay. So Punch Drunk Love should have cleaned up, basically. I really think you're right. And <laughs> I, I, it's, it's just crazy to me that it wasn't nominated for anything. It's a joke. 
But I, I wish I would have seen adaptation again because yeah. I have seen it. It's been a while. Um, you're making me want to rewatch it. But another reason yeah. I want to rewatch it because I want to compare Chris Cooper to Christopher Walken and Catch Me If You Can, yeah. who I thought he was good. He was so good. I think Chris Cooper was deserving though. Can I? He's great. I wouldn't give him an award, but can I throw in Dimit, Dermot uh, Mulroney? Yes, he played the fiance in About yes. Schmidt, the really goofy he guy was who so has awesome. the mustache Crazy and like the mullet. mullet. He has that line, one of my favorites, where he says, <laughs> "It's not a pyramid scheme." A lot of people think it's a pyramid scheme, but it's not. <laughs> he's so good, and he's also in Lovely and Amazing in the same year, and mm. also is hilarious in that. And I just feel like maybe he missed his calling. He's had a good career. He's been in a lot of stuff, but yeah. I think he almost falls into like that lower level of um, who we were talking about before with talented Mr. Ripley and Jude Law. Jude Law, where it's like these very good-looking guys sometimes get pigeonholed to play like the love interest in my best friend's wedding. The, and he's fine in that. The goofy, good looking guy. But he's so funny in these movies. And yeah. I don't think um, he's really known for that. Mm -hmm. Golden takes. Let's move on to golden takes, Brian. This is where you drop a truth bomb on me that <laughs> blows up. I don't know, I'm trying to think of something on the spot that matches your, <laughs> so, your truth and ignorance. My, <laughs> my golden take <laughs> is that a great movie needs to be both, satisfy both Harold Bloom and Robert Zemeckis. Harold Bloom, in his great book, The Western Canon, I bring this up before. I brought this up before. Here's the quote from Harold Bloom, the great critic, Shakespearean critic. He describes the culture's greatest books as possessing strangeness, a mode of originality that either cannot be assimilated or that so assimilates us that we cease to see it as strange. Originality should be praised. And be, it, it can be different and worse, but when it is different and better or different and, you know, it becomes its own category in some way, I think that maybe 20 years of distance helps us to see it better than it was at the time. But that strangeness is something to just seek after. That's what's exciting about art. Yeah. However. Not exciting for the Academy, though. It's not. However, Robert Zemeckis said that a movie trailer, right? We've talked about this few, a few times. Mm -hmm. A movie trailer gives everything away, yes, but it's because they're like McDonald's. People want to know what to expect when they arrive to see a movie or to go to get food. I think that a great movie does both. Even the movies that I would say, wow, look at the strangeness that puts Punch Drunk Love over the top. It's still a two-hour movie. It's got this catalyst. It's got this all is lost moment. You know, the love story, the M Emily Watson shows up at minute 12 and then they fall in love at, at the minute 65. And all these things are exactly what is in every other movie. And that's also key to our experience with it. Like they're supposed to also be like a sort of oddly comforting experience, just like McDonald's is oddly comforting. Yeah. I so mean strangeness and McDonald's equals greatest movies of the year. Yeah, I could see what you're saying. And <laughs> in a different, putting it in sort of in a different way is I kind of always just feel like, um, like a David Lynch movie, for example. Mm -hmm. If you're not emotionally hooked, or, or even if you're not intrigued by the style from like a technical point of view, but if you're not emotionally hooked, then the weirdness is not going to pay off. Right. So I kind of feel like it's the director's responsibility early on to, to get me on the hook 
And then you can take me wherever you want to go, mm-hmm. but you don't. You can't expect me to put in all of the work up front to figure out what what you're trying to do and why is this so weird. And I shouldn't be thinking about that throughout the whole thing. I should be yeah. following some sort of emotional thread. So. Why should I care about this character? If I'm asking that, you lost the movie. I guess so. Golden take for Mike. Yeah, I'm going to keep mine short this time. Um, there are great movies every year, and I'm happy with my five overall, but Punch Drunk Love, is, I think, is the only one that I'm like genuinely thrilled about. Mm-hmm. You know, these other four, I really did kind of throw around the order. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I debated kicking some off. I, it, it was a dicey experience for me this year. <laughs> um, Ris- so- risky even. Risky? Risky. Perilous. Yeah, it was It was dangerous. Um <laughs> So yeah, I just think there were the fewest standouts overall mm-hmm. in 2002. I think Punch Drunk Love is a clear one. I think there are other great ones, but um, if they were in the same category as movies from 2000 and 2001 with American Psychos and Unbreakables in there, like, not make it. they might not make the cut. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a nugget, a second nugget, Robin Williams. We haven't talked about him at all. Mm-hmm. He made both One Hour Photo and Insomnia this year playing two bad guys. And I thought that was interesting because it was yeah. like, that's clearly a choice that at this point, you know, he did Insomnia in 2002. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He that did... was the Christopher Nolan movie yeah. following up Memento. And he did Goodwill Hunting and What Dreams May Come in the 90s. So he'd done yeah. dramas before, but mm-hmm. he'd never played the bad guy before. Mm-hmm. And this is a year where he played too. So I just yeah. thought that was a, it was kind of a cool choice. That is interesting. And real quick, DiCaprio, he's in a Scorsese movie and a Spielberg movie in the yeah. same year. That, part of that was a little serendipitous because Gangs of New York was delayed so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't planned that way. But this is like the turn from DiCaprio as the teen heartthrob to DiCaprio as... The okay. long-haired, sweaty, stringy, serious guy. I think he was long-haired, sweaty, <laughs> stringy when he was younger. That was that, that was the teen heartthrob day. And then he slicked his hair back when he got older. True. And then he's like serious man DiCaprio. And, you know, then he's... Uh, this, is, this is pre. This is the precursor to The Revenant, uh, Leo. <laughs> By a lot. <laughs> to The Revenant. <laughs> he's got a lot to come. Yeah, for um, sure. In our next episode, we begin 2003, talking about Master and Commander, directed by Peter Weir and starring Russell Crowe in an adventure on the high seas. We want to hear from you. What was the best movie of 2002? Is it the same as your favorite movie of 2002? That's, Excellent that's a question. question. Spider-Man? Punch Drunk Club is better. <laughs> but we want to know. Let us know and we'll read your answers on the show. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Best Picture This. Thanks to WNZF and to Mark Gilliland for producing. And please remember to rate, review, subscribe, follow, whatever, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your pods. Do you have a favorite movie from the past that has been forgotten? If you become a patron of this show by visiting patreon.com slash bestpicturethis, you can help choose a movie for one of our bonus episodes. For example, Chris chose The Fly. Matt chose Garden, Garden State. Joey chose Bridge on the River Kwai. I think I'm getting that right. Yep. And Spencer chose Drowning Mona. Yeah, Drowning up, Mona. Coming up. Um, so thank you very much for listening to Best Picture This. Until next time, remember, the best movie of 2002. For the first time, I believe, we have agreed. Mm-hmm. Punch Drunk Love. It's Punch Drunk Love. Kick it!